Hello and welcome to the K Voices podcast. This podcast follows the K Enterprise's mission to implement holistic solutions for security, environmental, and social problems. Through this podcast, K Enterprises and MI Cynic join forces to talk about today's areas of concern and present innovative solutions. Hello and welcome to our second podcast in K Voices. Today we are going to be covering how to secure tomorrow's Britain. We'll be doing a deep dive into terrorism, counter-terrorism, security and the challenges of tomorrow's landscapes and how to secure tomorrow's societies, governments and nations. Today we are joined by three exceptional guests, two of which have joined us before. We are joined today by Mr. Gracias Casongo, CEO and founder of K Enterprises, an international trade and development firm specializing in modernization, security and infrastructure. K Enterprises has dedicated teams and partners who provide holistic solutions to tackle sustainable development issues with an understanding of the present challenges to help customers meet current and future demands. We are also joined by Mr. Chris Ula former police superintendent from the Greater Manchester Police, who has led some of the largest security operations in the history of the force, dealing with major incidents and emergencies. He's a qualified national security coordinator and liaises closely with the US authorities at an international level. He's responsible for business change programs such as GMP's headquarters and Agile Working. His recent work includes work at BlackBerry for its critical communications platform. And lastly, we are joined by Mr. Elliot Wilson, author, journalist, broadcaster and advisor, working in strategy and PR, as well as commentator on politics and parliament. He's the co-founder of PivotPoint, a strategic advisor and PR consultancy, clerk in the House of Commons, serving on several select committees, chief writer, then head of research for Right Angles, a London-based reputation management and thought leadership practice. I want to talk about one of the worst terrorist incidents here in Britain in, in recent memory and perhaps one of the worst days in Britain in, in recent history as well. Uh, this was on the 22nd of May of 2017 at 10.31pm. 22-year-old Salman Abedi detonated a shrapnel-laden device packed into his rucksack at the foyer of Manchester Arena where thousands of concert girls were leaving the venue. A public inquiry has been released and it found that the Manchester Arena suicide bomber could have been identified as a security threat on the night of the attack. Well, to stop here and consider what the conclusions here mean and what our guests make of them, what the memory of the Manchester Arena bombings mean, and whether the security challenges that were raised during this inquiry apply towards what we might be seeing in the next few years here in Britain as far as counterterrorism. Uh, now, Chris, I believe you, you work closely with, with this case, so I'll let you uh, start off the discussion. Yeah, I, uh, just, I, I didn't work closely with the case. I'm aware of the case. Uh, and first and foremost, the inquiry is still ongoing at the moment, so uh, limited to what we can and can't say about it um, yeah, uh, as far as that. However, uh, what I can allude to is the Kerslake report that was produced on the 27th of March, 2018, and some of the findings that Lord Kerslake uh, yeah, published. He was tasked to review the multi-agency response uh, to the arena bombing 
And uh, he, you know, he came back and, you know, there was high praise for those responders on the night. You know, let, let's let's get it right. You know, the police, the fire, the ambulance, and uh, the, the the private security and the staff from the arena as well. You know, all did what they could. Um, however, what it, what the criticism that came out, if you want to use that word, was that the communications could have been a lot better and should have been a lot better. Now, in my thirty years service with uh, uh, Greater Manchester Police, um, I've been involved in many. Uh, incidents, operations, exercises, and throughout my service, every single time I've had a debrief and inquiry into that, communications has always come out as being uh, sort of, uh, as being criticised. Yeah, it could have been better, uh, and it should have been better, particularly the multi-agents, the ability for the police, fire and ambulance, and the, what they call the tier one and tier two responders to, to communicate better. So that, that from the first thing, I mean, you know, he, he actually said that improvements were needed um, to communicate within organisations internally and externally. That's the first thing. Uh, the, the also, uh, the need to monitor social media as well uh, to respond to the inaccuracies that were there and to warn and inform because social media uh, actually was a hindrance uh, to the event on the night because of so much misinformation that went out there. And then you've also got uh, sort of uh, uh, other common sort of uh, you, uh, uh, apps that are being used uh, to uh, communicate. So things like WhatsApp, informal groups are set up and they're not monitored. And, you know, they breach GDPR rulings and, and they are, they're, they're presented. So you've got all these different methods of communication. You think to yourself, why in, you know, uh, you know in, the, in the 21st century, can, are we unable to communicate when we've got, you know, things, you know, we've got landline, we've got mobile, we've got social media, we've got television, we've got a, a plethora of, of communication platforms. Why is it that we can't do that? And just to give you an example of how it worked, uh, how, how it worked on the night, uh, you know, the, 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 the incident happened, the call came in, and then the, uh, the, what they call the person in charge in the control room, the force duty officer, had to then inform uh, the police, fire and ambulance and, and leaders within those organisations that we've got an incident. Now, that's very linear because the only way they do it is by telephone. Okay, so if I'm now speaking to you by telephone, it's a one-to-one. -one. If and I could, I could be briefing you for five minutes on what has gone on. If you attend down the line, it's going to be it's going to be fifty minutes or so before you actually get to know what has gone on. Now, as uh, you know, any leader, or anything, you're not going to wait for fifty minutes. You would not wait. Human instinct will not help you. So you'll start to look elsewhere and you'll start to try and find out what's gone on, whether that be uh, through your informal uh, contacts within the various organisations, social media. And uh, that's where the misinformation starts to come into it then. You know, what was it that they were dealing with on the night? Was it a terror attack? Was it a gas explosion? Bear in mind, this was an arena. This was a concert. Was it pyrotechnics? You know, what was it, a marauding firearms tech? What was it that they were dealing with? So because it was very linear, uh, the communications, it becomes very slow. And, and I think over the years, uh, organisations, particularly the Blue Light Service, have been forgiven for 
uh, not communicating in a way because the technology has not been there. But the technology is there now. There's technology out there that allows to communicate at a rapid pace to all the various endpoints. So when you look at you know the, the the arena attack and what happened on the night, you know, and and could it prevent be prevented? I'm sure that's one of the questions that will come up. You know, could it have been prevented? Um, yeah, it, uh, uh, I think with uh, diff- different ways of communicating. I think once you, the the threat is there, so you know you, the intent and capability, which be the ad, he had the intent, he had the capability. I think he would have carried out that threat, uh, you know, the, 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 the detonation anyway, if it had been confronted. The thing that might, may have happened, it may not have taken place in that location. But I think, he, you know, it, it, uh, dependent on how he's actually confronted, he could have detonated there. But we'll never know, you know, hindsight's a perfect science. So, you know, and you look at, you know, the, the security arrangements around there, and like I said, hindsight is a perfect science. And, you know, when you look back over it, you know, the coulda, shoulda, woulda type of uh, scenarios. Um, you know, you can do things differently. Uh, the, you know, you look at the security arrangements, you look at what has been put in place, and you, you think to yourself, and I've seen this again, there seems to be a pattern that we have an incident, a major incident, whether it be a terrorist attack, whether it be a flood, and all of a sudden, the the uh, the focus on the, that uh, that type of incident goes up, and lots of resources, lots of thinking, and you know, think tanks are, are put in place. But as time goes on, they fall back into the background again, uh, and the, and and I think that's what we've got to be always in mindful of. And I, and I hope with this one, it doesn't fall off into the background, you know, and and people's um, the importance of it of. of, of responding to these types of incidents as it fall off into the background. I think that's that's really interesting, Chris. And I think what you're saying about the the response to the Manchester attack and to, to incidents in general just demonstrates that when there is a major incident, whether or not, you know, well before we know what may have caused it, the absolutely critical priority has to be standing up some kind of command and control um, to do to get ahead of the curve, if you like. I mean, medics, combat medics talk about the golden hour for casualties after which the the likelihood of survival drops off dramatically. And I think there is a similar thing here. There is a golden period in which you can get on top of things and still have some influence over what's happening. But as you say, technology has to be an integral part of things. We've learned so much about communication over the pandemic. And what's interesting is that we've actually done it largely without great advances in technology. It's been learning different ways to use what we already have. Absolutely. Can I just interrupt that? Yeah, of course. A couple of things you said there then. You know, so so the, the technology, yes, it's got to come in, in, in and play a part. And the reason why I think it's been embraced this time is because it's part of everybody's day-to-day living. You know, your ability to use your mobile phone. You know, it, you're not you're not asking people to do something different. You know, mobile phone, laptop, and this this is crucial. In the past, it was you know you might have had a different device, a particular radio that you had to use, but now you're using technology which you use in your home life. You know, so 
if it, if it can, it's sort of it's like saying you're not speaking a different language. You know, you you, you know, you're speaking the language you use at home or in the workplace, and that in itself changes everything. As far as you, you alluded to the golden hour, we in the police we use that term all the time. But my view now, with technology's advancements and, and the way information is actually uh, disseminated, uh, I think we're talking about the golden minutes now rather than the golden hour. You know, we, we have that golden hour, but I think it's golden minutes. We've got to really act quickly, you know, because like I said, you know, these incidents happen and immediately they're on YouTube, they're on, they're on the internet and they, and, and they go viral uh, and they cause some misinformation as well, dependent on what, what, what wording goes with it and what people's views are. So, and, uh, you know, and there is a, uh, you know, a very robust command and control structure put into place um, you know, within the blue light service and partner agencies. Uh, however, I think it's it's put into place, but it needs that technology now to, like I said, you know, in the past you'd have been forgiven because the technology wasn't there. It's there now. And I don't know how long it'll be before, you know, the, you know, the, the powers that be will say enough is enough. Chris, you're spot on actually to contribute what you're saying. And actually you and I have had thorough, meetings with uh, even customers to raise awareness of how important this is. And uh, I think the bottleneck that we always come across is uh, they, they think it's complicated. <laughs> uh, they, they think it's, uh, it's, you know, it's not attainable. They, they think it's, uh, you know, you need to have a perfect infrastructure to, to actually, you don't need to have a perfect infrastructure. And if you're a government listening to us today, uh, you know, you can reach out to our teams afterwards, of course. But you need to uh, transform the way you manage crisis communication technology. And it's something we're going to talk about in detail later on today as well. But I wanted to briefly contribute to, to what you're saying, Chris, and also uh, uh, Elliot. And, and guys, you're spot on. The blame game has to end because the reality is we can point fingers at everybody. Who did this? Who shouldn't have done this? But the reality is everybody's to blame, in my opinion. First of all, the public has responsibility. Uh, po the police has responsibility. Our Security services have responsibility. Everybody has responsibility. And actually, we can only, in, in this circumstance, under the circumstances, uh, commend uh, our, our, our response, uh, our emergency services, security services, in view of the challenges they had during that period. It was not an easy thing. And I, and I think the lessons I think we've learned from this is, and as you said, Chris, is how do we improve communication? It's, 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 it's kind of a, it's the same issue. And if I can use a, as a general example in, it, in my heart, it's always something heavy when I catch it. On 9-11, the problem was communications. Interagencies to improve communications, but it starts from, a, from, from, from the grassroots upwards. As a, a, this is why I, I, I totally support the, 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 the campaign right now to encourage individuals to report these issues, to report suspicious activities. Someone's taking a picture where they shouldn't be taking pictures. Somebody's moving in a certain direction. They're sitting in a way that's suspicious. They have a, a, a suspicious bag, or they're, they're they're speaking in a way that seems very suspicious. Monitor that. You are the ears. You are the eyes. You are the contribute. You contribute towards national security. You're not a spectator. And I think the challenge we have right now is we need to educate the public that you don't need to be an operative or a police officer or a security agent or special forces. To, to, to tackle terrorism. Terrorism starts on a national level. What's you? Uh, you who are the public. 
I think I think uh, great point you make there, and I think there's there's a caveat that comes with that, um, and, and that is around how you actually then manage that demand. Okay, people used to see see incidents happen, and they, they wouldn't report it because it took them out of the way, or they have to go to a phone box and ring up. Now they have that; they have the device in the hand; they can ring up right away, which has then increased the number of uh, reports that are recorded now on you know on, on incidents that happen. So yeah, you know, let's say we get the public to come on board, but then on the other side, we need people then to respond to it. Yeah, we need the response as well. You need people to analyze, look at what the information is, respond back. Does it need a physical response? Does it need a call back? What type of response? And I think the balance comes there as well. Um, and, you know, another point you made the, the technology, I, I know there's technology out there now uh, that, you know, that can join up. Uh, organizations regardless what infrastructure they have in place uh, with no uh, so there's no technical um, hard work the tin as I call it there's no tin has to go in there it can be done very very quickly in a, you know you can join you know police fire ambulance local authorities um, you know the mayor's office um, the the hospitals uh, utilities, all these could be joined very, very quickly. So when an incident does happen, you know, that in immediate initial response, we've got an incident, notify all these people, it can be done at a click of a button. And, I, and, I, and I, I know people say this, but it is literally a click of a button. And off that information goes to all those, all those responders. Um, you know, and I've seen where uh, uh, organizations have run what they call a cascade exercise where they cascade the information, they receive information, they cascade the information out, where they use the traditional systems, which is basically a telephone, and it takes them uh, one, one exercise, it took them 76 minutes to notify all key personnel about the incident. I've seen them use technology uh, in the same way uh, where it reduced it down from 76 minutes to 10 minutes. You know, there's over an hour, you know, difference. And when uh, Elliot mentioned about the golden hour, and I'm talking about the golden minute, you know, we haven't got that hour time anymore. And it's about getting that information out to the right people in the right location. Actually, Chris, about the getting the information out there, I'm glad you're emphasizing on that because the challenge now is, you know, the big question, how do you help counterterrorism units, you know, and, and this is how you do it, you know. Yeah. This, it, uh, another thing you can also do is if you're listening today as a public, uh, you know, uh, be informed about how this occurs. You know, what are the patterns you should be looking for? Because if you don't know what you're looking for, you're going to become paranoid and think that everything. And let me clarify this. This is very important for you who are listening to us today. Uh, terrorism does not have a skin color. <laughs> and no. if, you, if you are st still held bent on that, you're deceiving yourself by default. Uh, I have met individuals. Uh, you wouldn't believe that this person actually is Iranian or uh, or or Russian, or you'd be surprised. I've met individuals who look completely, uh, you, you speak of them, you realize they're not. So never fight all that stereotypical kind of default that we that, that's out there, fight it and stick to the intelligence, stick to the, the truth out there. Uh, another thing that I find quite challenging sometimes, and, and I commend our security services, it's not an easy job, um, is how do you improve collaboration in a way that you build trust? Because over the years, 
Uh, I think when it comes to secrecy and confidentiality, you have to be careful about what you exchange out there, obviously because there are, there's enemies out there who want to harm us. So we have to be, you, you look at how they, how they operate, you have to be very careful. And we, we have to understand as a public that, you know, this is just why, why they have to be this way. But nevertheless, I still believe that our security services can improve engagements with the public, even creating a, a, a platform or a, a communication plan where individuals can communicate directly and, and raise awareness about issues in a way that's clear cut. Um, with the Internet of Things, one thing one of the things that will be consistent throughout is our enemies from proxy groups, from Iranian proxy groups, all the way to, um, uh, and let's not forget also Daesh, the shifting now their uh, presence mainly online. So, uh, you know, we're seeing a shift in that area. It's becoming much more strategic. And yes, they want to, and even uh, on a state sponsor level, Russian operatives and also Chinese operatives have a vested interest to, uh, you know, use anything. I'll give an example. So you take a, a Chinese operative. What they do is actually they'll gather uh, information, for example, the exterior, the, the extreme, extreme left and right wing issues and see what's going on there and take advantage of that and propagate to the Vulcan world and say, look how they, they hate you guys. Look how they treat, uh, you know, why do you want to trade with them? Trade with us. <laughs> we treat you with respect, they'll say, but it's disinformation. And they use that as leverage. And in Russia is the same scenario uh, as, 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 as a government. It's strategic because they're saying to themselves, well, if we actually tap into their infrastructure and even do a little thing to scare them off for a bit, it's to tell them that, hey, you put these sanctions on us, here's what we're going to do to you. It's a great way to say that we have muscle. It's a way of saying that we have muscle too. And we're looking at these issues and it's, it's strategic. Um, not to, our, 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 the challenge we have when we do this podcast is we do our best to keep it, bring it back to the gra- grassroots where you as, as a listener today can actually think, how can I make a difference? If you are a business out there, a government, and you are struggling with these issues, you can reach out to us. We will ensure that you have the best advice support to tackle these issues. Uh, if you are noticing issues out there, patterns are, that are suspicious, you need to raise awareness to uh, your local law enforcement. Um, and it's very, very important. Okay, back to you, Thomas. Yes, and uh, thank you, Gracias. I think you're right. In the spirit of finding solutions instead of simply listing problems, I think I want to finish this chapter that we're talking about, the Manchester Arena bombings, with a couple of questions directed more specifically towards finding these solutions into this decade that we're in right now. Uh, number one is after the experience and after the study of our response, do we have today a better operational understanding of how to prevent or minimize a public venue attack like this? And number two, are we better prepared as a country to prevent the next Salman Abedi from being radicalized to the extent of suicide bombing in a public venue? I, th- I think um, uh, the first one in relation to, you know, uh, are we in a better position now? Uh, there's been a lot of work uh, undertaken by uh, the Blue Light Service in, in relation to um, uh, gathering intelligence, you know, uh, and some of this as well 
because the public inquiry hasn't concluded, you know, so I can't uh, make comments on some of the things that uh, may come as recommendations out of that. But yeah, they, they, they've moved on. I say for me, I think the, the area of communications is, is critical. You know, they've got to get that right. Um, and and sometimes I think from my experience as well, it's they, they tend to wait for perfection. When I said there, I'm on about the organisations. So, so for instance, or, or what, what might, because of the fast-moving pace of technology, the technology today may be outdated tomorrow. Uh, so it's like, seem to, well, let's see what's coming next. Rather than saying, well, it's 80%, what we want, you know, let's go with it. 80% is better than nothing, you know, than, than 100% of nothing. Let's go with the 80%. And what uh, the term I use is, is, is uh, fixed forward. So as you're moving, you're constantly fixing, rather than staying put and holding in one place and waiting for the perfect technological solution, which you tend to find, it's like, well, what's coming next? No, we can't because it moves so quickly. And I think, again, the landscape has changed. Technology used to be an expensive commodity um, at one point. You know, if you think about it, you know, the big corporations used to have the best technology. Now look at it. Individuals have got the best technology. You know, the, the types of phones they use in your home life have got better technologies than some of the big companies. You know, I'm sure some of the listeners today will be thinking, well, my company's providing me with this poor performing laptop uh, and I've got a much better performing laptop you know and 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 that's how it is so it, it's changed so I think but communications and I can't stress it highly enough you know um, uh, it's always been one of my passions around getting the information getting the right information out there and how do we prevent another Salman Abida uh, attack uh, or, or, or another person becoming like him I think that's a real Difficult one. I think we can. Uh, I think we can mitigate some. I don't think we'll ever eradicate. You know, you'll always have that. But I think again, uh, we've we've talked about how the public can play a part in this. How our uh, uh, security services can pay, play a part in this as well by reporting information and getting that information uh, to uh, the right people. Uh, like I said, I don't think um, it'll be. I don't think you'll ever eradicate it, but I'm sure that we can move it in the right direction. And we do learn every time from incidents, you know, we learn, we reflect, and we try to put in place. But one thing I'd hate to think that, that uh, the organisations do is put money before lives. You know, it, it costs so much. Well, how much do you put on a life? You know, how much do you put on, you know, somebody, you know, if, if we can prevent, you know, somebody from dying by purchasing or or, or or integrating some technology. You may not even have to purchase. You might actually have technology within your organisation that you can uh, re-adapt or, uh, I think the phrase is, think outside the box. I think if I can pick that second point up, the, the, the point of, of counter-radicalisation. I mean, I go back to to our government's counter-terrorism strategy, which was first conceived in, in the late 2000s under Gordon yeah. Brown. And of course, that had four uh, pillars, if you like, four Ps, which was prevent, pursue, protect and prepare. So really what we're looking at is the prevent strategy. And I think by any measurable uh, estimate, you have to say that has failed. Uh, there has not, as far as I can see and as far as I'm aware of, 
any significant victory in a kind of uh, opposition to an alternative to the sort of information which is radicalizing both people on the uh, the sort of white supremacist neo-Nazi right or people who are uh, fundamentalist Islamist terrorists. Um, and I think one of the problems is that in both cases, you are fight, you're you're fighting a false narrative because Islamic terrorists would have you believe that there is a a, a righteousness behind the idea of a worldwide caliphate, that uh, the West is a, a sort of crusading imposition on the Muslim community, that the you know the boots of American soldiers are defiling the the holy places of Islam in in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and that there will be this appetite for Sharia law across the West. You know, this is all a kind of weird religious authoritarian fascist fantasy, but it, it's the ideology which drives them. And I, I think we've we've not yet found a way to get to grips with that. And I think correspondingly on on the the neo-Nazi right, you have this idea of uh, Western and specifically white values and culture being under attack. Uh, you have really quite small and and unimportant stories in the newspaper being prayed in aid of this narrative and this idea that particularly, and it's interesting, isn't it, that this seems to be a narrative which has some traction in Scandinavia, which are perhaps some of the most, uh, some of the least ethnically uh, diverse parts of Europe. There is this idea that whiteness, for want of a better word, is under attack, uh, that Christianity is under attack, uh, that the, the sort of values which the far right pretends that we all hold dear are, are being assaulted by, uh, by malign forces. And that's another counter narrative. So I don't think we really know what to do to hit those narratives and say, look, this is demonstrably false. And also, quite apart from being false, leads to deeply undesirable outcomes. You know, I think if you surveyed the, the Muslim population of Britain, you'd find a very small proportion which actually wanted to live under strictly imposed Sharia law. Um, and equally, even among, you know, disgruntled white blue collar communities in the USA or, or the UK, if you expanded the the far right narrative to its fullest, I don't think it's something they would find particularly attractive. So we're we're still looking for that answer. I think that that sort of uh, magic bullet against the false narratives that that extremists push. And I think what the government did do in the the late two thousand was identify prevent as the kind of critical and long-lasting part of the strategy. What I think they failed to do under successive parties is work out exactly what it's going to be. Gee, Elliot, I'm glad you brought this up and you're spot on, and, and, and Chris as well. So uh, kind of pausing on the extreme right-wing issue, which is actually now, right now, uh, on a security level, uh, really quite high right now. So if it, it, you know, this is this is indeed a big issue. So um what is interesting, I, I want to take Finland as an example. Finland, I, I got to give them credit. They're doing something amazing out there. The way they expose disinformation is incredible. They create, they just literally have a news platform that exposes disinformation and misinformation and literally shows these images, shows the sources, expose them verbatimly. And it's incredible. Uh, expose them verbatim. It's incredible what they're, they're, they're achieving with that. I think something that's something we can learn uh, and 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 maybe even even introduce within uh, even the main media 
And, uh, and if you are listening to us from uh, a media platform, I think this is something you should definitely embrace. Another thing, and I totally agree with you, uh, the, 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 the right-wing issues and, and, and also, let's not forget also left-wing issues, but predominantly we're seeing a, a major right-wing issue right now going across Europe. And the reason why, if you look at the pattern of things, uh, where, where, where there are social economic transformations, I use the word transformation deliberately, because actually if you look at where we're shifting now, we're going towards the internet of things, um, you know, things are more, much more technological and certain age groups that are struggling to embrace this transformation are seeing a bit of a struggle on, and then obviously you see an increase of unemployment in certain areas. And, you know, that means that there's a need for re-education, educate, education, uh, shift into entrepreneurship and, and, and so forth. But those who are struggling to embrace these transformations, then what happens is you're seeing a spike of, un of unemployment in certain areas and that creates social economic divides. And what happens is when you have, uh, and what's interesting is when you look at the extreme left-wing issue, uh, right-wing issues, it's predominantly a certain age group, actually. The youth tend not to be really much in that age group, surprisingly. When I say youth, I'm talking about uh, 17 all the way to about 20, 25. You look at more groups, age groups around 35 plus, that's where it's starting to kind of, kind of spike upward. But you look at the younger generation, they don't really think that way. They find that a bit conflicting, especially here in the UK, for example. Um, you, you know, you, you see a, a lot of youth coming together and standing against it. And the, the Black Lives Matter movement was quite an interesting thing to, to monitor. However, um, I, I still believe the messaging has to be careful because, you know, every single messaging, our enemies take advantage of that. Uh, and we need to be careful. And, and it sounds, 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 sounds uh, uh, generic, but we really do need to be careful. What are the messages we put For example, promoting unity. We need to, uh, even for example, um, as, as a government, we need to um, create new policies and, and be much more stricter and much more firmer on, on companies that uh, fail to embrace diversity in, in, in the workplace. We need to uh, hold people more accountable. We're also with the United Nations Global Compact and we actually observe and discuss these issues. Uh, where there's a lack of diversity in, in, a, in a working environment, all the way to uh, micro micro uh, communities, this is where you have the spread of, of such issues as well. So I think this is how we can start tackling these issues. And, and I think it's just regeneration projects. Government should definitely encourage that forward practically. Um, one thing I love about what's happened recently in police, especially here in the UK, uh, there's been a big campaign in increasing diversity and and, and uh, groups, uh, groups from different ethnic groups have come together more into and actually joined the forces. And this is happening all the way to security services and, and so forth. Uh, the challenge that Europe will have going forward is the damage has been done and the damage there. And I think, for example, it's understandable where certain groups have arisen from this. Uh, we're not encouraging extreme right-wing issues, obviously, but understanding where, where this occurs is important. You, you look, for example, what happened in Syria. Uh, you had a mass migration of people that have actually left Syria and have gone across Europe to settle down in different parts of Europe. Um, and this is strategic if you look at it on a, on a, uh, in a state-sponsored sense. Um, but also uh, this, this created a scenario where a lot of individuals felt that their livelihoods are threatened, their Western way of life are threatened. They see a, a, a rise in the, the fear that uh, groups coming from Islamic countries are entering to the countries and they might uh, expand, propagate. A good example is this. Look at what's happening in France. Uh, France is considered to be the most hated uh, 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 nation by Islamic terrorist groups. 
they really don't like France. And and my heart goes out to our French our French friends uh, because uh, the challenge they have is now uh, trying to balance the divide in a way that it doesn't damage the the, the, the nation as a whole. So this brings the final point, which uh, Thomas mentioned is how do we tackle this? What can we do right? What can we do to in the near future to ensure that this is an ongoing? First of all, we need to expose this information, uh, understand what this disinformation is, misinformation and malinformation, because all these 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 areas are they do have a, a, a direct impact on society and the way people think and, and so forth. We need to uh, ensure that um, uh, that we raise a, uh, awareness of of these. Of, of extreme views and and how you know if you see this if you see that it, you know also where can you actually report that the FBI for example do an excellent job in that area and for example they have actually a platform where if you notice these extreme views right now these extreme uh, individuals who are promoting extreme views you can actually go to the FBI in a specific page and report that and they'll take care of that I think here in the UK our national crime agency are doing that but I think more can be done to really highlight that and the police can can do more to that. And I think, for example, for improving community, poli- community police coming back to, to the UK uh, starts by actually police officers walking in the community and talking with the community. I don't mean talking to the community, I mean literally, like, hey, how are you? And how are you doing? And greeting the community, because actually, uh, you know, there's still a, a lack of this, although there's community policing, there's not enough community policing. And what I mean is, is, is and I'm, uh, this is not to blame the forces, because obviously in the same to- token, actually, on a government level, I think the government should actually find ways to uh, encourage and support and promote uh, and find ways to help uh, our, our forces, uh, our police forces, to uh, have the, t- the, the finance, the support they need to actually improve community policing. Uh, so... All this plays into how we can tackle this. Chris, what are you thinking in regards to that? No, just in relation to, I mean, there's been uh, a tremendous amount of work undertaken uh, by government, by the police forces around community policing. If you if you remember, I said we, you know, we police by consent. You know, that's that's the that's the the main thing, um, and it, it's really strange because uh, dependent on where you live depends on whether you want to see a police officer or not, you know, and, and it's strange, you know, in some, some areas, not, not whether they want to, that's the wrong word, in some areas, they turn around and, and they're not bothered whether they see a police officer from one week to the next. In other areas, they want to see a police officer, it gives them that reassurance, you know, dependent on the demography, etc., and what's going on. So uh, to have a blanket community policing, um, you know, do, or do you, do you actually look at where it's needed. And then you've got to balance that then, right? Because, uh, you, you know, <laughs> it's funny because most people, um, you know, if a police officer walks you know, to you, you see a police officer walking to your door or knock on your door, they tend to, you don't think you've just come to tell them that, you, you know, they've won the lottery, do you? Do you know, do you know what I mean? They tend yeah. <laughs> to do what the police doing here. So I think, um, so most people, when they want, you know, if they want to see a police officer, it's about a response. So you've got community policing on one side, but you've also got to balance it with response because if something's happening, I want to be able to pick up the phone and a police officer here. Um, and it's that fine line, you know, around community policing, response policing, you know. And, and again, it's, 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 it will always be driven by the public, you know. The public will actually dictate what type of policing 
they get. You know? Beautiful question, Chris. Actually, uh, I love how you mentioned this. And then back to you, of course, Thomas. And Ellie, if you, if you want to contribute as well. Um, but uh, do you feel that maybe we should have maybe a separate division within the police in terms of community, poli- uh, like like a community engagement branch? That just- so, so, well, we, we are to some degree. So we've got police community safety officers now. Yeah. Yeah. Police community support officers, should I say, who the PCSOs, they support the police. Uh, but what you're talking about there is do we have something like what we've got, you know, a two-tier policing system like they've got, you know, in France or whatever, a national and a local, you know. Again, that's a debate. I don't think it's for this this session, but it's uh, open for another. Definitely, yeah. definitely. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Chris, and gracias for taking care of uh, discussing this this element, community policing, which I'm sure will form a line of the uh, the front line of tomorrow's security. But I want to mention two other areas that we've touched on today, and two two words that have kept coming up. One of which was mobile device security, and the other one is crisis communication. And it seems to me that the, the three of you have mentioned this several times. Uh, in this conversation today, and therefore they must be crucial parts of how we're going to secure the prison of tomorrow. And I want to bring this in line specifically with something that has come uh, to dominate the media circles lately, which is, of course, these the so-called Pegasus hacks. Now, I'm not sure if the the three of you have have heard about them, um, but basically uh, there's been a a number of high-profile sort of public personalities that are either implicated or victims uh, of of these hacks, which seem to originate from, I think it was an Israeli firm that originally developed this product. And uh, it it is tied to what Gracias was speaking earlier about stealing identity and through mobile device. So I want to speak about about this. How important is it that we get this right in this decade? And how crucial will this matter be to the the personal, but also the national safety uh, of our citizens? Yeah, I think I think I alluded to this uh, right at the beginning around the, the you know, originally threats were uh, to uh, large corporate companies, the tech, the, the, the on-premise servers, everything was there. and to hack into them. But the mobile device now has given the, uh, you know, the would-be hacker, attacker, um, uh, a really, really different uh, way of of infiltrating uh, organisations, infiltrating governments. By getting so the Pegasus hack, you know, it's spyware, okay? It goes on your system, it goes on your mobile phone, it's easy to do, uh, and, and get information off, whether that be, uh, from your contacts, whether it be from your uh, emails, it can, it can record conversations. You know, it can it can actually extract your whole contact information if you want. If that's what we're going for. So, uh, and again, you know, you look at well, what's the intent of, of, of the attacker? You know, is it just to cause annoyance to a, an individual or is it more sinister around, you know, uh, uh, national or international uh, threats as well? So, you, the, you know, and I, I, I can't seem to stress enough the, the importance of, of securing your mobile device. Everybody thought that the iPhone was the secure device, you know, uh to, to purchase, but now that's being uh, penetrated and infiltrated. Uh, and again, you need to have something in place, and, and there is, again, organisations and, and uh, IT, and this is what I talked about, I, um, 
uh, technology being AI and machine learning. You know, there's, there's technology now that's out there that can actually, you don't have that human interaction, you don't need it. It can be placed on your phone and it can pick up this information very, very quickly when somebody's tried to do an attack. And when you talk about crisis communications or, or crisis uh, or critical communications, again, this is it, it is so fundamental to uh, how we actually respond to uh, incidents. You know, um, whether it be a terrorist attack, whether it be a natural disaster, you know, um, it's so important that you respond quickly. Uh, and effectively, not as a single entity, not as a single organisation, but brought together as a multi-organisation because you can't deal with this on your own. The police can't deal with, you know, if it's a flood, it's, you know, they, they need the services of, of uh, you know, the, you, of utilities to switch off the power. You need the fire service to be there. You need the ambulances. You need hospitals. You even need the, you know, you know local authority to come in and provide rest centres if you've got to take people out of the homes and put them somewhere. So that the, the ability to communicate is really important. And let's not just... Uh, limited to crisis communications between the organisations, the people that are being affected need to be communicated with as well, you know, and kept up to date. If I can just give you an example, just a simple example, if you you book somebody to come to your house to do some work for you and they're giving you a time that they're going to be there and they don't arrive, okay, and they don't tell you that they're not arriving, all of a sudden the anxiety starts to go up a little bit. Where are they? What they, you know? However, if those individuals, and I tell you, are very good at this, some of the delivery companies, you know, they'll tell, they'll give you a window. Your your, your parcel is, you know, eight stops away. Your parcel is two stops, and it gives you, and, and it, it it lowers that anxiety. Now, if you can imagine that type of scenario, where you know it may be a, a multi uh, car uh, collision, it could be floods. And you're not getting that information. Your, your, your anxiety levels, your stress levels are up here to start off with. You don't want it being then further impacted upon by not being informed. And that, again, is crisis communications. So it's actually informing those individuals as well. And, and again, this isn't just for the big corporate companies. This is for your small, medium enterprises, your small, medium businesses. But, you know, you still need that ability you know, uh, to be able to communicate. And it, uh, it's, it's, it's scalable as well. You know, you don't, it, whether you've got 10 members of staff, you still need to communicate. Whether you've got, you know, 10,000. Uh, and, and like I said, the, the platforms are there. There's technology there. It's not expensive. It's very quick to put in. It's uh, and very, very little ongoing maintenance then, if any. I, I think if I could just pick up on the privacy point for a moment, I think... It, it is absolutely right that we need to understand, as you were saying, Chris, the kind of intent of people who are seeking to compromise that. But I think also we do need to talk a bit more about personal responsibility because yeah. you you have, on the one hand, people who are very anxious about their, their data, people who will you know, talk about uh, big tech companies as if they're these sort of sinister organisations trying to use data for for uh, manipulation and for nefarious purposes, who will talk about 
for example, the, the, the COVID vaccine as some weird kind of data uh, mining exercise or vaccine passports or something very sinister. And yet who will go on to Facebook and disclose their most intimate information. And you see these quizzes like, you know, what's your favourite film? Or, you know, what's your first childhood memory? And these are clearly, a lot of them, they're, they're, they're scraping information to assess people's potential passwords and things like yeah. that. And I think people have got to to be a bit more informed about the genuine dangers to their privacy as opposed to the wilder things that they read once about on the internet, how, you know, Microsoft can scan your irises and clone you or something, um, and actually be aware what the real dangers are. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, of course, I think, to an extent, make an accommodation with them and, and judge how much information they're willing to disclose and, and how much they're not. And I think that's got to be a, a personal decision. Actually, uh, yeah, and uh, Elliot and Chris, I love how you both emphasize on personal responsibility. And uh, Thomas, you brought a very important point in regards to you know the the current you know threats in terms of mobile device security. I want to kind of break it down to, to into segments, and I want to kind of bring it before that come into relation on a relational level. I want to speak to you as as a listener today. Let's say you're working for a company, and for whatever reason you notice that your phone is lagging, you click on applications, it delays to access and eventually you do access. Uh, and then you're, you know, you're going to work, connecting your phone charger to your hard drive to keep it charged, uh, sharing, sending emails and so forth. So the, the reality is this, every time you're doing that, uh, Without you knowing, knowing that you've been infiltrated, you've become uh, the, the link between a, a state-sponsored and a, a group or uh, a serious organized group who are now harvesting information about the company, stealing patents, stealing uh, trade secrets, and so forth. It is as simple as that. You are a government. You have many staff members engage in large-scale projects, different ministers, different groups, and so forth. They, are, they, they use the mobile devices more than the laptops. They exchange things via WhatsApp. They click on multiple links throughout the week. How do you make sure that no one is, is actually a victim? I use the word victim very specifically to these attacks. You need to protect your devices. Please contact us. Our partners and all of us here are committed with you to tackle these issues. It's simply team at kenterprises.biz. We will discuss with you how we can help you tackle this. Do not be a victim. Do not be passive. The threat is real. Unified input management is crucial as well. You need to ensure that you have everything unified in a way that you manage privileges so that if there's ever any issues where individuals may by accident uh, send across um, information out there uh, to others who should not know that, have that information. It could be a large-scale project, a project, a project with uh, uh, several layers of NCNDAs. You don't want to have that project out in public. It can be very damaging. So to conclude in this area, I highly recommend get in touch with us today. Let us help you in this journey. And again, don't be that victim. To follow us in this in following marks is the 
escalating threats of, of state-sponsored uh, activities will continue. Um, and this is going to be predominantly from the countries that we've mentioned, uh, going to be government directly or through proxy groups. Um, you need to be more aware if you're a business entering into contracts with companies from these countries, look at the small print. And if you're not too sure, reach out to us again, and we can help you ensure that you tackle these issues. Over to you, Thomas, and thanks again. And on that note, uh, gracias. I want to extend uh, your line of reasoning there by uh, just reminding our guests and our audiences that K-Voices, this podcast that we're building, is not just about penetrating insight into matters of security modernization, but it's also about finishing on, on a positive note, about finding solutions and about reminding the world that we can overcome these issues. Uh, it's just a matter of figuring out how. And on that note, I want to just briefly touch upon um, the areas that we've that we've talked about today. We talked about cyberspace, hostile state actors such as China, Iran, Russia. We've talked about counterterrorism, the Manchester Arena bombings, crisis communications. We've covered a lot of grounds into what we can expect in tomorrow's Britain. But I want to ask each one of our guests today to maybe remind us of one takeaway, one positive solution, one implementation that we're taking as a country, as a society, as a city, whatever level you want to analyze, that you think is on the right path, or certainly getting there. And if we might start with you, Elliot. Well, I think, overall, the most important thing is to remember that technology in all its forms uh, is a tremendous potential tool for good. And I think we often lose sight of that amid the, the worry about security and data and all of those kinds of things, which is understandable because these are our day-to-day concerns that we have. But I think we need to keep in mind that there are extraordinary advances possible. Um, I'm taken back uh, to, I was lucky enough to, to visit Iraq when I worked with the, the House of Commons uh, to, to see British troops stationed there. And one of the things I found extraordinary was the medical care uh, that was going on and the way that although they were in the middle of the desert in Basra, British army medics could be liaising in real time with hospitals in the UK, particularly in, in Birmingham, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, which is, is where a lot of defence medicine is done. And this could be done in real time, in incredible detail, in, with incredible accuracy. And just that kind of, of technology would have been impossible five years before, 10 years before. And I mean, this was 10 years ago. So by now, the, the technology has probably advanced even further and, and can do more extraordinary things. So I think we we need to be a little comforted by technology. It can do extraordinary things and it can do things that we never expect. And we need to, I think, try to ration our suspicion of, of the unknown and our, our comfort in, in what we're familiar with and understand that it brings with it its drawbacks and its, its pitfalls, as does anything, but that really it's, uh, technology is, is the most remarkable tool we've been given to, to make our lives and our, our world better and that if we are careful and if we are imaginative, it can do exactly that. Well, if I, if I can 
Can I give an example now? Um, uh, it's a real life example that I'm currently working on um, in, in Greater Manchester. Um, and it's on the back of uh, the arena attack and, and, and my experience uh, dealing with the, uh, even back to the city bomb in 96 um, and the various other uh, demonstrations, etc. Where we, I'm working on the uh, Greater Manchester Shield uh, program. And that's uh, where we are using technology to bring together uh, organisations, first of all, and it works like basically um, on an onion skin effect, so internally making sure that the organisation can communicate much quicker and better internally, whether that be to specialists, whether it to be to senior execs or commanders, uh, the, the PR team that need to be aware of what's going on and getting that single source of truth to feed out to the news outlets uh, and the various advisors. Then taking that wider, connecting then those organisations, the blue light organisations, to uh, the mayor's office, social services, ambulance, hospitals, uh, fire and rescue, and then widen it out again to the communities, you know, so thinking, thinking around the various watch schemes that we have. You know, in Greater Manchester, you've got Business Watch, you've got Home Watch, and link, bringing them as part of the communication. Now, this might not be for crisis communications, albeit it would be great, but even if it was just uh, maybe an organised crime group, is uh, active in the city centre to be able to send that information out quickly. Or, uh, you know, a road closure, a main arterial road closure has, has just taken place, to be able to send that out to people uh, in, in, in the uh, city centre, for instance. So they can then plan for their, um, uh, their employees, you know, getting to and from. So you've got that and, and other various public groups. And then going wider still to the uh, transport infrastructure, the airports, shopping malls, uh, arenas, stadiums, you know, sports stadiums, bringing them all in in the shield of communications. So, and, you know, and you can pick and choose what information goes to where. That, for me, if we can get that, you know, in place, could you imagine having a UK shield, you know, where, you know, they... Uh, you know, uh, Manchester can talk to Merseyside, Merseyside, or even London, you know, that huge shield program, that would be absolutely. And the thing is, this isn't, this isn't, uh, you know, sort of sci-fi. This is here. This is here now. It can be done. It can be achieved. And we've started doing it. Thank you. Uh, Chris, uh, I, I, I totally echo what you're saying. And, and it's, 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 I think what gives me hope and, and what, I, what we are doing right now is we're more aware as, as, as people, as businesses, as uh, NGOs across the country, uh, and even as agencies, in regards to uh, the, current, the general current threats. But the challenge is, is we're still going through that implementation phase where we're not embracing new technologies, embracing the right technologies for it to push, to, to, to tackle these issues. Uh, and I totally echo with you that we need to uh, not be afraid of technology. And I think that right now uh, there, there is still this fear that, oh, if I have, uh, you know, mobile device securities, that means that, that they're going to be snooping in my life. And no, it just doesn't work that way. It's totally isolated and solid in a way that your privacy is respected, but the threats to your infrastructure are identified and isolated. 
you need to have it. And again, contact us and we will indeed give you a variety of options to help you tackle this. Crisis communications has been mentioned over and over again. As a business, as a small business, medium-sized business, NGO, government, no matter where you are in the world, Chris and I will not say it enough. You need to have crisis communications. Crisis communications is a contingency just for when it gets goes wrong. At least you have something to ensure that you uh, are making sure that your staff are safe, your family's safe, your friend, and, and also if you're, when I say family, sometimes you may have, for example, doing great large projects overseas uh, and we have multiple groups and, and teams, you want to make sure that these teams are safe and accounted for. Let's say that, that you're working somewhere and there's a disaster somewhere. How are you going to make sure that you, everybody's accounted for? You can't call everybody simultaneously. That's very difficult. And what if you lose connectivity and you lose internet connectivity? How are you going to do that then? <laughs> so crisis communications bypasses all these issues, allows you to engage directly with all your teams, and 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 it's very very important. And to the families, you can even inform your families whilst you're informing your whole teams that hey, I'm okay. I'm now in, at, a, at a hotel and I'm safe right now. So it's very very important. Uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us today and a, a warm, uh, especially a gratitude to all, all, all everyone else who's joined us um, for the previous podcast as well. Special thanks to you, Chris, for joining us as well. Special thanks to you, Elliot, as well. And thanks, and special thanks as well to our great branch and, and, and partners from MI Cynic and Thomas, who's also our international consultant. You are amazing and we really appreciate you guys. Thank you so much, Gracias. And uh, likewise, thank you, Chris and Elliot, for uh, for a wonderful conversation today. I think we covered uh, a lot of ground and uh, we'd be honoured uh, to have you over for the next episode and uh, to talk more about these issues. And if I might just finish the podcast today, uh, four years on from the Manchester Arena, bombings to commemorate and dedicate this podcast to the lives lost on that day. Thank you so much for joining me, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of K Voices. This series focuses on finding decisive solutions to critical problems. If your business, your organization, or yourself face a similar problem, please reach out to find out how we can work together. If you have a skill, talent, or zeal for solving problems, K Enterprises would be thrilled to know more about you. You can get in touch by writing an email to team at kenterprises.biz. This is your host, Thomas Brancato, and I hope you are as eager to listen to our next episode as I am to host it. Thank you once again, and I wish each of you a great day.